You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, Episode 74. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. On today's show, we talk about historic preservation using structure from motion and photogrammetry. Let's get to it. All right, hey everybody, welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast. Welcome, Paul. How's it going? I'm pretty good, Chris. How are you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. Um, hopefully, if you're hearing this and you're in Southern California by any chance, if you're hearing this on the day that it comes out, which is uh, Thursday, March, I don't even know what day that will be, March 8th, <laughs> then uh, please, if you're if you're anywhere near the Society for California Archaeology uh, meetings that are happening in San Diego, then come by and check me out at the Archaeology Podcast Network booth. And I'll also be at the Wild Note booth, but it's right next door. So uh, I'll have somebody in there. we got some really fun swag. I have an Archaeology Podcast Network pillow that I'll have there, which is amazing. It's from Public. I love it. It's black, has the APN logo on it. It's totally ridiculous. Nobody's going to buy that. And I hope nobody buys it because I want it in my house. So, all right. So today uh, we're going to talk about, uh, like last week, we talked about an article from uh, the SAA's advances, uh, advances in archaeological practice. However, uh, I got stuck by their system and didn't realize the article was like three years old. Still had a great conversation about it. But this article, however, is from SA Advances... Volume 6, uh, 2018, it actually just came out, uh, I think a couple of months ago, as we're talking about this live in March of 2018. Uh, I think it came out last month, whatever the latest issue was. And the name of the article is Using Structure from Motion Mapping to Record and Analyze Details of the Colossal Hats, or Pukau, of Monumental Statues on Rapa Nui, otherwise known as Easter Island. And it's by Sean Hickson, Carl Lippo. Terry Hunt, and Christopher Lee. And we did try to contact Sean Hickson, actually. Um, one of his emails bounced back. The one that's listed in the uh, in the article here actually bounced back. So I don't know if that was a typo or what. But if anybody knows Sean Hickson uh, or any of the other authors and can get a hold of us, we'd like to get their thoughts on on why they did this project and, and how it came about. But in the meantime, we're just going to talk about the uh, article and what they did. But really, we're going to talk about uh, what you can do with photogrammetry and structure from motion and what that actually even means. So first let's talk about photogrammetry. Uh, in its base sense, photogrammetry, as we've talked about before, is just taking a whole bunch of pictures in a certain way to create a 3D model of an object. Uh, it's really to create a 3D point cloud that you can then, uh, and really a point cloud is just a cloud of points. It's exactly what it sounds like, millions of points usually. And you, you will layer on top of that either actual imagery so it can be like a like a photorealistic kind of imagery or you just create a, a really dense point cloud and maybe it just stays a point cloud so you can get some really good uh, uh, textural uh, uh, textural I guess um, detail on that and structure from motion mapping is a it's a, it's another type of uh, photogrammetry basically and that is what we are going to talk about in this article so so the article I, I'm gonna really just get into it uh, it's, it's kind of a short article. They spend a lot of time trying to explain to people what photogrammetry and structure from motion is and, and how all this stuff works. But really what they were doing was, as I mentioned in the title of the article, they were taking those red hats that you may have seen in pictures, or pukau, they call them. And it's red because it's, uh, it's a red sort of vesicular, I think it's basalt or something like that. It's, it's volcanic either way. It's mined in one spot on the island. And then some of these were... I think they said like 12 metric tons and then hauled across the island, like 12 kilometers <laughs> in some cases to where these were. I have no idea how they did that. That's just totally amazing. Space aliens. Probably. Of course it was aliens. Yeah. Um, now, the good thing is, I mean, if they knew what they were doing, these are round. So they probably quarried and shaped them on location uh, at the quarry. And then, I mean, not that it's easy to roll a 12 uh, ton rock, but it's easier to roll it than it is to drag it, I would imagine. So if they had enough people and they had enough uh, supplies, I mean, they have like ropes and things uh, because I think they can make that kind of stuff from the veg that was on the island, then they could probably figure it out. You know, uh, how they got it up on top of the statue is a mystery to me. Um, my, my thought has always been they, they would build up um, earthen ramps to get up there or something like that and then deposit it up there and then excavate out the ramps. Still takes an amazing amount of uh, person power to just do that, but... Um, yeah, either way, one of the reasons they were trying to do this and figure out a way to uh, figure out a way to use photogrammetry and the structure from motion photogrammetry to record these things is two reasons. One, preservation. So the items, the these these hats and the the statues themselves, the moai are 
they're not preserving well. Uh, people have used portions of them. They've fallen over. They've cracked. They've broken. There's, uh, you know, the the hats in particular, people have taken pieces off of those and used them for other buildings for the last few hundred years. I don't know how much of that is happening now. But uh, one thing that is happening now that's been happening for at least 100 years is sheep are grazing all over the island. At one point, it says there were 60,000 sheep just running all over the island. And, uh, and one of the things they would do, because these hats and things were like crushed, well, the sheep even though they're slow and methodical about it, when they do it every single day and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of them, they're just slowly walking on the fragments of these things and just breaking it up and crushing them even more. And, uh, and they're walking up on top of them and doing all these things. So, so it's kind of just slowly, but surely degrading the, um, these, these, these hats. And another thing, uh, regarding preservation and then analysis on top of that is as they're mapping these things with detailed photogrammetry, some of the things that just aren't visible to the naked eye because maybe lighting conditions or whatever, uh, or maybe we're just not sensitive enough to see these things. But once you create a point cloud and then you can dive right into that point cloud and really look at it, they're noticing, and they notice this on a few of them, but they're noticing it on all of them now. I think something like 98% of them have petroglyphs etched onto them. And, uh, and a lot of these, they didn't even know that there was something there, but photogrammetry can really pull that out because of the detail that it can see. Uh, once it once it does all its analysis so those are some of the things that they really talk about that's the really the the big thing of the article here is talking about preservation and talking about analysis those are the two big byproducts of doing photogrammetry and also photogrammetry he says minimally invasive in the article and i would go ahead and say it's completely uh uh, completely non-invasive so I don't know how invasive it's going to be to just take a photograph of something, especially these stone rocks. Now, I guess if you're taking photographs with flash photography of things that can be damaged by the the flash itself, then that is that is slightly invasive. Uh, but the the advantage you get from that, obviously, is is ultra high preservation. So um, anyway, I, I would go ahead and say it's a non destructive, non invasive technique in in almost all cases, and especially in this case, there's there's no damage they could have done by taking photographs of these things. And the only thing they had to do on top of photographs was take ground control points and measurements. So they'd have these, you know, somehow they'd have um, known lengths, objects of known length or known points within the photos. So you can add those as markers in Photoscan. And then once you do that, everything is measurable to to the most accurate measurement that you had within the thing. So if you've had like total station points accurate to say four or five decimal points on your location, then your model is going to be measurable to four or five decimal points, whatever your, your most accurate thing was, which is kind of amazing when you think about it. So anyway, I think that's the uh, summary of the article. And we, I want to talk a lot about preservation and some other things, but uh, Paul, you're not as familiar with this photogrammetry stuff as I am. Cause I've done, I've done a lot of this stuff. What are your initial thoughts on this? Is somebody kind of coming fresh into it? Um, what's your initial impressions of, not only the article, but like this in general as a preservation technique. Uh, it's probably pretty inter- interesting to me. The first time I was exposed to photogrammetry, I mean, I'd read about it and such, but the first time I actually saw anybody doing anything was uh, I used to work on the Great Temple site, uh, which was Brown University's excavations in uh, in Petra, Jordan. And uh, and they were working on, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember her name, Eileen Vogt. Uh, she was working on mm-hmm. a photogrammetric project of uh, reconstruction, not actually reconstruction, recording some of the standing architecture of that temple. Um, at the time, this would have been the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, the software was really pretty crude. And so it took, you know, it, it managed to make a model, a 3D model that you could then look around. And it was in conjunction with a big project they'd gotten um, at Brown called The Cave where I guess they had like a, a, a hollow deck, basically. Uh, <laughs> and so you could go and stand in that one corridor of the, uh, the temple uh, with the photogra- photogrammetric reconstruction around you uh, and look at it. Mm. Uh, I don't know how useful that necessarily was in terms of, uh, of preservation or in terms of analysis. I think it was more to test the boundaries of what they could do with, uh, with pho- photogrammetry to record uh, architecture. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and so they were definitely expanding in that avenue and they're expanding what they could do with the computer work. Um, but, you know, I didn't participate in that. I looked over her shoulder a few times and, and saw what they were up to and thought it was pretty cool. Um, but I want you actually to back up a little bit. Uh, structure for motion. Is that a program? Is that a methodology? Could you go into some detail about that? 
Yeah, it's a methodology, and I, I'm not. I, I want to try to pull out some actual, um, you know, some actual phrases from the article here because he actually explains it really well, probably better than I could. And I mean, structure for motion is is a photogrammetric technique, just like he mentions laser scanning is an alternative to structure for motion, but it's also kind of a photogrammetric technique, really, except it's not photos; it's laser scanning. But you get you get a similar product from it. Um, so let's see, uh, what does he say here? Um, Photogrammetry is a practice of using photographs to make measurements. Structure for motion is a subset of photogrammetry that consists of a range of imaging techniques that models three-dimensional structure. So uh, it's really talking about modeling three-dimensional structure. And when they say structure from motion, I mean, really, it's kind of a weird phrasing, but it's really going around an object and mm -hmm. really you need three perspectives typically. So a lot of times people will just um, like, let's say you're doing a structure and let's say you've got a drone, for example, um, because you need to get the top of the structure as well. So you take pictures with your camera in a normal orientation, like landscape orientation all the way around the, the structure. Then you rotate your camera 90 degrees and you take all those photographs again. And then uh, you can rotate your camera 180 degrees or you can rotate it 90 degrees the other direction. And then you take all those pictures again and you have a 70 to 90% overlap on your photographs. And from that, and, and it possibly when they say structure for motion, what they possibly mean is it's kind of magical when Photosoft, um, Agisoft uh, Photoscan, I mean, uh, or any other photogrammetry program, when they look at these things, they're looking at the stuff that's quote, not moving. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's weird because like trees and stuff like that, because they're kind of in a different spot and they might have moving leaves and things and stuff like that happening, or even people, if people are in there and people are moving around, they won't actually be uh, created in the point cloud because they're not, they're moving. And, and any, anything that's not in the same place in, in consecutive images is not actually mapped by the software. So it's kind of magical <laughs> the way that that works. It makes it kind of weird if you're doing landscape for this stuff and it's a windy day. Um, you'll get some weird artifacts from it if like trees are moving around and stuff uh, and you don't have enough photographs where they're in the same location that it can it can actually pull it out. And I'm not even sure what the tolerance on that is. Like if it's just kind of moving a little bit from the wind, is it actually going to blow it out entirely or or something? I don't know. But um it makes it it makes it something you have to consider uh, if you're going to do this on a windy day with objects that could possibly be moving in the wind. But stuff like what they did here, they're just sitting there and they basically put a measurement tool on it and just took a whole bunch of photos in different orientations to in order to build this. And that's what they're calling structure from motion, because theoretically, you can do photogrammetry, just straight up photogrammetry with um, with just three images. Honestly, I mean, it really needs three points to kind of get the 3D uh, imagery down. It won't be very detailed, but you could do it. Um, you know, you, it won't be a, it won't be a very good one. The more images you have, the better it is. Um, let me see some other stuff that he says here. So the, uh, the motion kind of implies the camera moving around the object. It doesn't imply like I first interpreted, uh, the name right. I heard it. I was thinking that it was pulling it out of, uh, out of video, you know, <laughs> which might be possible, but... Um. Actually, that is possible. We actually downloaded, because we were looking at taking, uh, because the drone that I've got will do uh, will do 4K video, up to 4K video, uh, but it'll also do uh, it'll also do raw JPEG images. So I created a program, well, I used a program and created a flight plan to record this one, uh, this one area that we were looking at. And I had the drone snapping a photograph every, you know, every so often in order to get the overlap. But the downsides to that were I, I had to have it fly really slow because it's processing time on, and this was with a high speed uh, SD card inside of there too, but the processing time on a raw photo image, and we wanted raw because raw absorbs not only the, it is not only the highest resolution you can have, but also it brings in a lot of the metadata, like the, uh, like the GPS coordinates and things like that. So, um, so that was good to have the raw photos so we could have the locations and all that stuff tied to each photo. But the problem is the drone had to fly so slow because the processing time after a snap was long enough that, you know, it 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 just needed to fly slow so I could get that overlap. Now, one of the things we looked at was just doing 4K video, and the whole video is is um, is georeferenced, so that's not a problem. But and then pulling snaps out of that video uh, because if we could do that, then we could fly really fast around an object and and really save the battery and get a whole bunch of stuff done. So we found actually a free program online where you basically just you set the interval and it pulls basically a, a snapshot out of the video at what inter, whatever interval you set. 
Um, so if you're flying at seven miles per hour, you'd have to calculate, well, what, what interval am I going to need to get you know, 70 to 90% overlap? Probably pretty quick, probably every second or even less than that, just to get your images. Because Photoscan won't work with a video just yet. When you can drop a video in that thing and have Photoscan pull out the images that it needs in the, in the interval that it needs and then create something, that is going to be kind of amazing. But right now you have to have that intermediate step where you pull out the images and then drop all those into Photoscan. So, and the, the nice thing is, you can have a little bit of blur in your photo. They don't need to be like the best photos you've ever seen. You just need a lot of them and it will pull out that structure and it will pull out that, that imagery that you're trying to look for. I mean, the more photos you have, the better it's going to be. And honestly, the more photos you have, the lower quality they can be because it's, it's aggregating all this stuff together and creating the best image that it can. So anyway, yeah, go no, ahead. So I was going to say, uh, I was going to ask, do you think that that's the way that uh, photogrammetry is going to go, that you're going to be able to do video? And then uh, another technical question here uh, that you just brought up about the quality. Um, how important is it to have decent, high-resolution, in-focus photographs? Is it... Uh, is the mm -hmm. software pretty resilient to, you know, photographers blunders? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what I was mentioning is it's just, um, I mean, I think, well, let, here's where I want to go. And I think that we're really close to this. Um, I think we're to the point where we could take a, a backpack drone. I mean, the Mavic pro is a backpack drone right now that shoots 4k video. You can literally just fold this thing up and practically throw it in your back pocket and just have it do its thing. So I think we're getting to the point where uh, once we're near the end of, say, recording an archaeological site or something like that, if we want to have a 3D representation of that site boundary, I mean, ideally, we'd have like some smart pin flags and georeference locations. But even just in the short term, you set a center point, you tell the drone, listen, fly a circle at three different elevations or something like that around the center point, taking video the whole way. And that'll take maybe five minutes. And then you come back down, you move on, you pet the drone in your backpack and you move on to the next site. And then from that video, you just drop it into a program and it crunches everything. You've got presets done. You already know what's happening. And it just spits out 10 hours later, a 3D model. Now that is, that is where your final question comes into play is, do they need to be high resolution images? Um, if Photoscan has to has to work really hard to begin with, I mean, it's doing a lot of complex mathematical equations in order to make all this stuff work. So your average computer system is going to take, it, it could take days, depending on all the things that you need to do and how many images you have and how big a thing you have. I mean, it could take a really long time. They have ways to basically cloud computing. Um, so where you can network computers that are across the internet and it will basically send pieces of the job out and then get it all done simultaneously. But that's somewhat difficult to set up um, and, and not really all that good right now that is from what I've seen. If, if anybody's had better success with that, let me know. But, but anyway, what I'm saying that for is it, it does allow for, because it's, it is so smart. If you have a ton of photos, the more you have really the less quality they can be because it's got more to work with. But if you only have a few photos or if you only have uh, a short amount of time to take really good photos, then make them the best photos that you can be. And honestly, I mean, in this day and age, even if you have, 10,000 photos of something, they're probably all going to be really good photos because everything we have from the camera phone in our pocket to the drone takes amazing photographs. <laughs> so there's really no reason to have bad photographs anymore. And if you've got a couple bad ones in there where you had your finger over the lens or, you know, something happened, it's just going to reject that. It's just not even going to be a factor in the whole thing. If you've got a hundred other photos that don't have that. So, so yeah, it's very forgiving and, uh, and, and we'll do a really good job. So let's, continue this conversation on the other side of the break and talk about some, some of the other things that we can do with this uh, as we wrap up that segment. Back in a second. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high quality downloads of each show and a discount at our online store and access to show hosts on a members only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Hi, welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 74. We're discussing photogrammetry and structure for motion. Uh, you mentioned some stuff right at the end of the last segment about uh, the, the 
tech aspects, I guess we should say, of, uh, of photogrammetry, you know, the computer processing and so on. Uh, is, is anything mentioned about that specifically in this article? I'm kind of curious, you know, what kind of mm-hmm. camera equipment they were using, what kind of computers right. they were using, how long these these images took to process. Yeah, well, they kind of cover that. So, I, I mean, um, in most articles, you you typically talk about methodology, but honestly, they spend more time talking about what photogrammetry is because people don't understand it uh, than anything. But to their credit, they do mention that they did a, uh, they, there was a, a field survey where they identified using GPS um, all the things that they needed to do. And then they took over uh, approximately 10,000 photographs with um, two Nikon D7000 cameras, which are pretty amazing cameras. And each of those photographs was uh, contained embedded GPS coordinates. So either they had a GPS module or the D7000 might actually have GPS internally. I think it might actually. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I don't really know. And then they mentioned they used Adrasoft uh, PhotoScan version. Uh, what does it say here? 1.0.4 2014. So this article, uh, they did the field work for this uh, quite some time ago. It sounds like four years ago. Uh, at least, or at least they just had an older version of this uh, software. So either way, um, they don't mention anything about the computers they used or the processing time it took to do all this. I mean, 10,000 images and over like 90 objects, I'm guessing that took a considerable amount of time. And depending on what university they were at, maybe they had some some high-end computing power to use, but uh, probably not. <laughs> I hope they didn't do all that on the desktop. Um because it would have it would have literally taken forever. I mean, it was just well, not literally, but uh, it would have taken <laughs> an incredibly literally. long time. Not literally. But, um, no. So this is if it's assuming that. Uh, I mean, just the quick back of the uh, envelope math. So that's a little over a hundred shots per object. It looks like theoretically, yeah, yeah. Um, which which isn't too bad. I mean, if you yeah, think of these are pretty small objects, yeah. I mean, they might weigh twelve tons, but they're still only a few meters across in diameter and. That's really not that big, uh, right. and there's there's a lot of detail to the surface of them, but there's not a lot of detail otherwise. Like they're basically big shaped lumps of rock with carvings in them. I mean, so there's you don't you don't need a ton. Honestly, a hundred photographs sounds like a lot for something like that. So they're probably just being cautious and you know took as many as they could. But well, uh, if you need yeah. that seventy percent um, overlap in the shots, then yeah. that makes me. Actually, it brings up another question. Uh, since I haven't done photogrammetry before, and you have. Um, is it possible to take shots like farther out shots to try to get the overall structure? And if you have some part of the object that has detail that you're especially interested in, take in, take some close-up shots or even macro shots and mix those together in the same model? Or does everything have to be kind of an overview? Right. In my experience, everything needs to be at about the same distance from the object. So you don't, you don't necessarily need to be zoomed way out, uh, you know, standing way out or standing way close. You should be, at relatively the same distance for all your photographs for a particular model. Now, there are more complicated ways to do things, which are you can take, let, let's say you've got, let's say you've got some really crazy architecture, like let's say some sort of, uh, you know, church or something in Europe, and it's just got these pieces coming off all over it and outside. Well, you would want to take probably using a drone because you need to get up and over this thing, but you would take all of your initial photographs of the entire structure from probably the same distance and and just get all the way around the structure and get everything, create that model and then see where your holes are and then go back. And, and I've never done this, but I have heard of people doing it. And, and I've actually seen, God, I'm trying to remember where that was somewhere over in the middle East. They did this, um, level by level structure like they were excavating down and they were doing photogrammetry at, at, of the entire area after each level was excavated across this whole entire site and then when they were done you know they, they had to make all those individual models and then when they were done they took those models and they brought them back into photoscan and and basically stitched them all together they brought all the models together into photoscan and created one massive model so to answer your question yes and no you do if you're doing one model, you probably should have everything at about the same distance from the object because it uses those sort of calculations to make what you're looking at. But you can go in and take detailed shots of certain things, but that's a separate model that you can probably add on to the other model later on as long as everything is in the same space. Um, so everything is in the same coordinate system. Everything is in the same within the same dimensions. You know, you have the same markers and things on there. 
to measure it. So otherwise it's going to be really complicated and come out really funky. But if all that's similar and you drop it in, especially if it's geo-referenced, like if you have not just measurements, like I know this is a, a 10 centimeter length and that's what I'm using as my marker. But if you actually have a high precision point in there, you could bring those models together, line those points up, and then your models will light up magically right on top of each other as long as your your coordinate system is the same throughout the entire thing. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, it's a lot of work. I mean, this is this is by no means an automated process, even though Photoscan has a lot of automation within it. There's also a lot of um, there's also a lot of uh, presets and settings that you have to go through for each one of these steps because they they have the workflow in this article. And I thought it was really good. It's a basic, basic workflow because they did skip some steps that either they didn't do or they should have done. Um, it looks like they have some good models. So, um, but here's the basic workflow. And this is all PhotoScan. So you gather the photos. Then within PhotoScan, you align the photos. Um, you create the dense point cloud. You create a mesh, create a mesh texture, and then clip on wanted mesh surfaces. Um, and then in MeshLab, they added the colorized curvature um, filters, and then uh, basically they colorized the model, and then they highlight and label the surface details uh, using MeshLab. Now, when I've done PhotoScan stuff, these there was a lot of like intermediate steps in these PhotoScan steps that they have here. You know, some stuff that you have to do, like they didn't mention identifying the markers, which we know they did, because you have to have markers in your photo to, to be measurable. They didn't mention that step. Um, and some other stuff related to... Uh, related to these, but, um, but yeah, it's a lot of work. Um, but the payoff, if you do it right is immense. The the only real issue is, is the learning curve. If you're, if you're learning how to do this, it's going to take days and days and days of processing, because if you make one small change and you're like, what's this going to do? It's like 20 hours of processing later, you find out (laughs) like, oh crap, that didn't work. (laughs) So, uh, that's, that's one of the only downsides to the processing then, um, the, the preparation actually, uh, and the photography side is that, uh, how close do the photographs have to be to each other in terms of color and lighting? Uh, do they all have to be very similar or is the software pretty resilient to, uh, to wide changes in, in lighting in particular, but, uh, but color as well? Again, that goes down to processing time. If it is all similar and you do a really good job, the processing time will be lower because it has to work uh, less hard. It has to work less. I don't know how to say that. Anyway, it doesn't have to work as hard if everything is, is actually in optimal conditions. However, like I said, it doesn't really care these days about lighting and and stuff like that. I mean, if you're got some shadows and you're going around or whatever, if you got some heavy striking shadows on something, that is going to be a problem because it's going to photograph differently. But with that 90% overlap, if there's anything out of miss for one photograph, that one little part that's out of miss, uh, that's out of step with the other photographs, won't be taken into account because it's not like the other photographs. That's why that overlap exists. So that's really the key. If you screw everything else up, but you've got 90% overlap on your photos, you're probably going to end up with a pretty decent model. So, I mean, that really is, that really is the driving force. There is the overlap because it's, I mean, all this software is doing, we, we talk about all these complicated things and it's got all this complicated uh, math going on behind the scenes, but really what it's doing is saying, is this point in all the other pictures or in enough pictures for me to care? You know, is this point in enough pictures for me to care? If it is, then it saves that point and creates that point. But it's just doing that millions of millions of times for each model. And that's where all the complicated algorithms come in. So, and if you just, like I said, if that's the only lesson you take away from doing photogrammetry is take a shit ton of photos, then you're probably going to end up with good models. And this is what I want to encourage people to do. We're taking digital photos on our sites now. If you just use a program that can at least help you organize those photos or something like that, maybe you don't know how to create 3D models. Maybe you don't have the software. Maybe you don't have the time. But if you're on, say, a CRM project and you've got a structure, if you've got a really cool feature or something out there, and and you know this site is either going to be destroyed or not preserved in any sort of quick fashion, um, what it doesn't hurt to just take a whole bunch of photos. And like I said, as long as you have that overlap and you know a few different things, take a whole bunch of photos, flip your camera 90 degrees and take a whole bunch more. And then just write those down as a photo sequence and call it from, from JPG underscore zero zero one two to zero zero, you know, nine, nine is a photogrammetric sequence and just store that. It doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't, you know, really take up that much extra time. And then somebody sometime later on can come through and create a a 3D model of this snapshot in time that you've created. Because, I mean, I look at some of the structures out here in Nevada and I mean, we, sure, we take photographs of that stuff, but 
at the next snowstorm or the next big wind could just knock it right the hell down. I mean, some of these old mining structures and things like that, it, it doesn't matter. They've been up for a hundred years. At some point, they're wood, wood and rusty nails. They're coming down at some point. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, taking a snapshot right now in time um, is is the best thing that you can possibly do, even if even if nobody can do anything with it. And I think having those 3D models later on is going to be just uh, an amazing resource. Because one of the things you alluded to, Paul, was, uh, and I think they they didn't really talk about it much in here, but it's I think it's one of the best um, applications of this is uh, is is public archaeology. You know, I mean, it's it's great for us to be able to study these things. It's great for us to be able to preserve these things and then study them later on. But really, what's a, what's the whole point of this whole thing? Unless we can tell people about it, especially people that can't go there or can't see it or don't have access to it, we, we all know that that uh, making a, a more educated populace is is actually really difficult when people don't want to leave their homes and they don't want to go anywhere. They just want to live in their hometown that they were born in. But we can bring the world to them through these techniques pretty easily. I mean, you know, you want to talk about Sketchfab now because it's a great way to see all this stuff for free. Yeah, so you said that these uh, these models that they made are up on Sketchfab now, right? Yeah, the link is in the article and the article will be linked on the show notes. That's great because um, I don't know. I was at a uh, at a symposium a couple months ago, and there were some disparaging comments from some of the people presenting about Sketchfab, and I just couldn't disagree more strongly with what they had to say because <laughs> uh, I haven't used it heavily, um, but I have actually used it for teaching materials in um, in class I teach. Uh, it uh, they're 3D models uh, deliverable across your web browser, so you can look at the models of whatever object's been scanned and roll around. and uh, And one of the projects that they had done is a collaboration with the British Museum, and so a number of the artifacts uh, that are held at the museum are there up on Sketchfab. But they also went an extra step, and they have these annotated. So, for example, the Jericho the Jericho skulls those uh, those mud plastered skulls with the cowrie inset eyes um, those are up on Sketchfab, and I use those in teaching about the class, so I didn't have to waste everybody's time talking about every detail about these. But I could point out to a couple of students who uh, who might be interested in it. I said, "Hey, go look at this," and they, on their own time, can uh, can go to the website and roll this uh, this model around in three D and look at the annotations and find out more details about it. They can look at it from angles that I've never been able to see before. You know, um, the flat bases, which imply that they were set out like on a shelf or something to um, to, to as a display. Um, that's something I didn't know. I may have read it at some point, but I could see it with my own eyes by rolling it around upside down on Sketchfab. And it seems to me that Sketchfab as, you know, there's a lot of garbage up there. Uh, and the disparaging remarks from that symposium were because of the relatively low resolution of the uh, of the models that they have. Um, not anything serious about, you know, what its intent is. But it seems that Sketchfab as a resource for public archaeology for people who want to show off the uh, the objects that they that they've found that they've studied that they've discovered whatever, um, it's a really good way for them to do so. And you know, in popular imagination, a lot of archaeology is about you know treasures and objects and artifacts and such. Uh, and a lot of our study actually still focuses on these things. And so it's a good way to mm-hmm. put information out available to the public in a very easy way. And so I'm glad that on this particular project, they did the same. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and looking at some of their stuff on on Sketchfab here, uh, I'm actually kind of wondering uh, about some of these, if the images were intentionally, um, intentionally blocked out because of culturally sensitive material or if they just didn't have the imagery for some reason. Uh, I'm looking at one of these Moai images. Which one is this? Uh, let me see if I can pull the name out. Well, anyway, um, I'm looking at one of these and it's got uh, historic graffiti on it. I see J period C something or other, somebody's name. They just like in really huge fashion. But then part of this, I think the part that was sitting on the ground is blocked out. But then part that wasn't sitting on the ground, that would have been the opposite of that, is also digitally blocked out. And I'm wondering, did they block that out because it's, like I said, culturally sensitive or is it... Um, did they were they missing blocks of imagery for some reason they just didn't show up that doesn't make any sense because the rest of this is highly detailed uh but to your point 
you know, this is, this is a great way to teach people about things that they can't see and they can't do anything with. And, uh, and if you have sensitive information, well, simply don't show it or block it out like these guys did. And, and just, you know, curate what you want the people to see and then explain why you've done that. You know, I think it's, I think it's bad form to, to just block stuff out and not give a reason for it. But if you block stuff out and say, Hey, we had some other stuff in here, peop- but it's culturally sensitive and we were asked not to show it, or we were asked not to, you know, for one reason or another, we decided not to show this. And I think it's important for people to know that just as important as it is for people to actually see the things. So anyway, um, a few minutes left in this segment. What are our, what are, what are your final thoughts on, on this whole thing? Uh, so I, I, I'm liking it pretty much. I, li- I love it. Yeah, this is another tech that I, uh, I've always kind of lamented that I didn't know more about, and uh, and it seems like, well, depends how expensive the software is, but it seems like the tech is getting to the point that it's uh, that's useful and uh, and common and accessible in ways that you know this seems to be a refrain that that I go on all the time about how much easier everything is getting on the the tech front for us to gather, mm-hmm. interpret, and disseminate data, and this seems like yet another thing that archaeologists probably should have in their toolbox and i uh you know, i feel a little ashamed that i don't know more about it already well i mean it's it's not unlikely though because i, I mean, i'm looking at i mean it's, it's an expensive tool it's it's like it's like other stuff like ground penetrating radar and things like that i've got a friend who's who will probably have on this podcast soon because his book just came out but you know people know about ground penetrating radar but do they really know about ground penetrating radar probably not because the equipment used to do it is really expensive and uh and, and not a lot of people can afford that so typically they'll hire somebody like like dan bigman the friend of mine and uh they will get them to uh to do it for them because they just don't understand it and they don't have the equipment well same thing with photoscan except i don't know of anybody you can hire to come out and do photoscan for you or if you take all the pictures hire someone to do the processing for you. Hell, I'll do it. If you have a whole bunch of pictures, I'll, I'll charge you a really reasonable rate because I have PhotoScan, but I have it from a previous association and I did not pay this price. And I, I just looked it up online here. There's a limited time offer for a standalone license um, for $3,350. <laughs> now, I've heard, and, and I'm not really sure, but if you contact them, they have really, really solid educational discounts. So if you can get it on an educational discount, I mean, they're practically giving it away from what I understand on an educational discount. Um, if you don't have that, then you're going to pay for it. But um, they're using all those other people to pay for it to you know, to get it in. And that's how I got it. I got it through somebody else and they had it on an educational discount. So they had extra license and they... And they gave me one. Um, so well, anyway, just like we have, yeah. um, you know, we've got uh, radiocarbon labs, and we have people like your friend doing GPR, and there are other yeah. specialties that don't necessarily aren't necessarily tied to one project or one company in particular, but they uh, they rent out their services and their materials and their time to uh, to other archaeologists. Maybe that's a, a business opportunity for some aspiring photogrammetry expert in archaeology to do mm-hmm. is to people on how to take the appropriate pictures and they'll have the hardware and the software in order to process them and give you back a model of uh, of your own artifacts or landscapes or architecture or whatever is it mm-hmm. that you're doing yeah absolutely so all right well i think that about does it for this article again if you're associated with the people that wrote this or or know them at all please have them contact us but we would love to get their thoughts because I, I know as an article goes you have a limited amount of space and you really got to get your stuff out i'd really like to know what they think about this and, and where they can go with it um you know moving forward so all right well we're going to end this right here and we'll come back with our app of the day segment back in a second the archaeology podcast network has partnered with t public to bring you some awesome gear that looks good promotes archaeology and puts a few pennies in our pockets so you can get free podcasts check out our designs at arcpodnet.com shop that's arcpodnet.com shop all right, welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 74, and this is the App of the Day segment. Now, I'm just going to bring this up because I really want to highlight it as an amazing tool that archaeologists can use, and we've obviously already talked about it, but my app is just going to be Agisoft PhotoScan. Uh, now, it's not an app in the sense that you can use it on a on a mobile device because obviously the computing power is way too high. Um, you download this onto a Mac or a PC, works on both, and probably works on other systems as well. But... Uh, 
just go to Agisoft, uh, and that's A-G-I-S-O-F-T dot C-A, and uh, Photoscan will come up, or you can just type in Agisoft Photoscan. They've got a really a lot of really cool images on here and, um, and some stuff that you can see. And they are... Uh, it actually, they link YouTube for a bunch of um, application examples on YouTube, and they link Sketchfab, um, which we've already talked about, uh, as a resource to see a lot of stuff that was generated within Photoscan. So uh, just to let you guys know, some of the supported image formats that they have listed right on their front page here is JPEG, TIFF, PNG, BMP, and then they list JPEG again. But uh, those are the kinds of images you can bring into Photoscan. And then output formats is a GeoTIFF, which is a really cool file. Um, I've seen a lot of uh, like like uh, USGS maps coming out as a GeoTIFF PDF, basically not PDF, but a GeoTIFF, which means it's a georeferenced TIFF file. So it's a high quality, high resolution. They're massive, but you can drop a GeoTIFF right into um, a GIS program and have it show up where it needs to show up and be amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's it's really cool that you can download those now, but you can generate your own GeoTIFFs of your site. And if you do that, and because it's a GeoTIFF, it means you've put in coordinates and it knows where it is in space. You can drop that right into your uh, GIS and have it drop right into the exact spot it needs to be on top of all the other points you had. So uh, my recommendation, pick yourself up a Mavic Pro drone, put that in your backpack, and then take a landscape shot of your site. And rather than having that shitty, blurry Google Earth or even uh, some other uh, you know, crappy USGS map from the 70s as your background, how about a geo tiff of the actual surface that your site is sitting on? Put that in the background and let's level up the uh, the production here in archaeology because that really wouldn't take a lot of extra time, but the output would be amazing. So I think it'd be awesome. Uh, Google KML files. KML files are the the basically the, the points and lines files that Google uses. So um, anytime you see uh, in Google Earth or something like that, a line or a, a bunch of points or something like that, uh, shapes, those are all KML files. Uh, Colada, which I'm not really sure what Colada is, VRML, uh, Wavefront OBJ, that's an object file, um, POI, 3DS Max, Universal 3D, and PDF. So all the outputs there that you would ever need and some that I've never even heard of. So, um, and, and it's really cool, some of the imagery they show on the front here. They show a dense point cloud that's been color corrected. They show um, a digital elevation model, which you can create pretty easily out of these things. Uh, and that's colored to show different elevations, of course. And then a georeferenced ortho mosaic export, um, which is basically, you know, an ortho shot is basically non 3Ding your shot, bringing it right back down, but making it georeferenced. And it's a really good, this is the kind of thing that I would put in a site report. I would have these ortho mosaic exports um, for each site that I'd have uh, as part of the part of the data that's just shipped on the CD with the site record. It's kind of hard to display that kind of stuff on a PDF of the report <laughs> or a printout of the report. I, I love the day when we all go to just really high quality PDFs with all this dynamic stuff in here because these these 3D files, you can actually drop these into a next generation PDF. Um, people have been doing this for years actually. And in that PDF, you can actually rotate and move around the, 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 uh, the image. You can't do that in like a standard flat PDF that most of your programs can record, but with Acrobat, Adobe Acrobat Pro, you can create these really dynamic PDFs. And I think personally that that's where our site reports should go. That's what we should be using to create those things so we can have these dynamics within our reports. So anyway, super short. Um, as I mentioned in the show, in the program, standalone license is $3,350 and that's a discount. I don't know what the regular price is, um, but they do, they do have a contact button here and don't quote me on this, but if you call them and say, I'm a nonprofit or I work for a school or something like that, um, I've heard that they cut pretty solid deals. So, um, and they're, and they're proudly Canadian, apparently, according to their website, I actually that's thought they were Russian. But they're probably Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> I actually thought they came from Russia for some reason. Somebody told me that. I guess that's wrong. Anyway, that's all I've got. That's my app of the day segment. Um, definitely check that out. And like I said, I have Photoscan and I'm not the like best at it. But if you want some stuff that you've got a series of photos and you want me to see what I can do with that, um, I'll, I'll just work something up and see if you like it and then send it back. And if we want to work out an arrangement where you want to consistently do that, then let's talk uh, because I have some pretty solid computing power here. And, you know, I wouldn't charge you by the computing hour, of course, because the computer just crunches numbers in the background. Um, it's really just the setup and then, you know, making sure everything's running properly and, uh, and doing that. So let's talk. If you've got it, contact me. So otherwise, Paul, 
what do you have? Okay, well, I've got one that has no particular use for archaeologists, but um, today we had nice. a snow day here. Uh, so I was going to spend the morning working on a, uh, a programming project that I've been kicking around for a long time with a Raspberry Pi uh, to make a serial interface and a web uh, web controlled serial interface for Total Station. Um, I've had this idea for <laughs> well over a decade, and uh, and mm -hmm. every now and then I pick it up and play with it a bit. So I was going to spend a couple hours this morning, uh, really kicking the tires on some of these things. And instead, I uh, picked up a guitar and started playing with um, with an app on the guitar uh, on my phone, rather that uh, that I just thought I'd share because it's a lot of fun. It's uh, it's called Tone Bridge. Um, it's by Ultimate Guitar, which is a website full of guitar tabs. And uh, now, mind you, I consider myself the world's worst guitarist. I've been playing since I was a kid, and I stopped progressing sometime shortly after I picked it up, but I still enjoy it. Um, basically, uh, you take an interface, something like an iRig, which is, takes a uh, the guitar cable on one side, and the other side goes into the headphone jack on your on your phone, or else it goes into the lightning jack, uh, and then you put headphones on, and uh, and they're modeled amplifiers and effects and such so you know there's some that are like amp kit and jam up um and i actually own jam jam up and have used it before uh garage band you can do it uh, and you know listen to a lot of fun now these ones you can set up a whole effects chain you have different pedals different amps and you tweak everything on them um so every time I've used them in the past, as cool as they are, I end up spending all my time tweaking. Tonebridge has taken a different tack. What they have is a bunch of uh, presets that sound a lot like various songs. And so you launch the app and uh, there's a big banner across the top of different collections. Uh, full and juicy, pop hits, acoustic songs, whole lot of rock, hot leads, um, metallic, uh, post 90. Anyhow, you get the idea. And so within that, they have a bunch of different patches. Uh, you go to the patch and it's basically, you know, one pedal looking thing with part of the, uh, the album art wrapped around it. And, uh, and you can look, they have a, you click on a little eye in the upper right corner. It'll tell you what kind of guitar is suggested, you know, if it's, um, humbuckers or single coil and which pickup that you should be using. And it shows you what the gears, what the, uh, the gear is, uh, in the chain. Uh, you can now as of a more recent version, uh, you can tweak the settings, but you can't switch around what, you can't swap out one distortion box for another one, for example. Uh, only make minor changes to it. And it is just so much fun. I ended up spending most of the morning just plugging in and trying out different sounds that, uh, you know, from different songs that I kind of more or less know how to play. Uh, and most of these, most of these, uh, these settings are, are really quite good. They, they come pretty close mm -hmm. or closer than I could ever get on my own to mimicking the sound. Now you don't have a way of creating your own, unlike amp kit, jam up garage band. You don't have any way of creating your own presets. You don't have any way of sharing them with others. Uh, I know you can do that with jam up. Um, you can request that the good folks at uh, ultimate guitar make one for whatever song it is that they don't have in their library yet, but they've got something in the range of 10,000 different songs and settings in their library. And, uh, you know, if you happen to have one of these, one of these interface boxes, you know, like the iRig, uh, and you happen to play guitar even as badly as I do, and you want to play around with, uh, with some different sounds, it's, um, it's just a load of fun. <laughs> So maybe awesome. the archaeological connection is if you're going to the field and you bring <laughs> along a practice electric guitar and you don't want to bring any other equipment, you can just bring a cable, interface box, headphones, and your phone and uh, and jam along in the evenings and uh, not disturb anybody, uh, but have some fun with it. Uh, I didn't mention it's available on iOS, on Android, and on the Mac. I don't think it's available on Windows. They don't have any regular website for... Uh, Ultimate Guitar doesn't have any regular website for this particular app. You can find it on the different stores. I don't have a Windows machine handy right now, so I couldn't find out if there's mm -hmm. uh, if there's a Windows version available. Okay. Well, this is pretty cool. I, I mean, uh, I have a guitar, but it's not an electric one, and I don't really know how to play it. I've just messed around with it. But uh, a lot of archaeologists have a guitar because they just like they just like playing, and I think. 
I think more would probably bring uh, an electric guitar if they had an interface and could play it, you know, just through headphones and things like that. And this would this would really change things for them. So I don't know if people have obviously smartphones and, and tablets these days that this would be a great little add on. And, and on top of all that, I love any device, whether it's specifically for archaeology or not, for CRM archaeologists. And I say that because. You know, obviously this isn't archaeology related, but it kind of is because when you're a CRM archaeologist, your entire world is consumed with just doing work and living on the road, right? And and living in hotel rooms. And the more mm-hmm. you can improve your quality of life living on the road, the better. And to me, the way to improve your quality of life is to bring things with you that can do more than one thing, like, you know, like for cooking, get an Instapot or something like that, because it can do like a hundred different things. Um, get a get a tablet and then add all these apps to it and do all these different things. I mean, you could sit there and play your guitar with your tablet, and then you could watch a movie on Netflix, and then you could read a book, and then you could write up a document, you could write an email, you could surf Facebook, you could do whatever you want, all in one device. And that's amazing. So I like having these recreational tools as well because the the recreational stuff helps our quality of life improve, which helps our work improve. So that's fantastic. All right. Well, I think that's it for this week. Again, if you're in San Diego and you're listening to this in real time, come over and uh, and check out. And if you're not going to the conference, send me a message or something like that, and maybe we'll have some kind of meetup. I'll be there until Sunday morning when I head back to Reno. But uh uh, definitely, definitely try to hook up. I'll have a bunch of stuff with me for the APN as well. So maybe we can hook you up with some stickers or something and, uh, and go from there. So anyway, Paul, thanks a lot for joining and, uh, hopefully you don't get buried in too much snow this afternoon. Well, we have thunder snow now, so, um, (laughs) maybe I will. I'm looking forward to it. Sounds exciting. I, I say you grab a hot cup of coffee and pour a little whiskey in there and uh, and just sit by the window. <laughs> I got to run out in an hour or so. I've got to run out to Brooklyn and that's a, oh, it's going to take me an hour to get out there in, uh, in no weather. So this might be a lot of fun. <laughs> it might be a late <laughs> evening for me. <laughs> Nice, nice. Well, this is Paul's final broadcast on the Architect Podcast, everyone. So Before he got lost kidding. somewhere <laughs> in the subway system of uh, Snowden, New York City. There you go. There you go. All right. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, again, come visit in San Diego if you can. Otherwise, we'll see you at some other conference or we'll see you on the Internet. Leave us a comment and we'll see you later. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash architect. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.